If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In 1945, France emerged from four years of Nazi occupation and collaboration and began to grapple with the part it had played in the Nazis' bid for domination. The nation confronted this head-on, putting the leader of Vichy France, Marshal Patin, on trial. Accused of collaborating with the enemy and betraying his country, both Patin and France's reputation were in the dock. Danny Bird spoke to Julian Jackson about his new book, France on Trial, which explores this dramatic chapter in modern French history. What motivated you to write this book and why now? Well, I decided to write the book because I'd just written a huge biography of Charles de Gaulle, who was a leader of the resistance in France during the war. And in a way, what I'm telling in this book is the other side of the story. I told the story of the the resistance through de Gaulle, and I'm now, in a way, telling the story of what he was resisting, which was the regime of the collaborator Marshal Pétain. And I decided to do it not by telling the story of Vichy again, but actually by telling the story of Vichy as seen through the trial of Pétain in 1945. So although my book is quite a dramatic account of a sort of literally day, almost day by day of the three weeks of the trial. The point of it isn't just to tell a, a good story, but I think it is a good story, but also to tell a good story that re-examines the nature of that regime that the gold and the resistance was against. And I think there's one other a point which relates to the the rather special relationship between de Gaulle and Pétain. Pétain was a First World War general hero. De Gaulle had been a junior soldier in the First World War, but they had known each other since the First World War, and there was a complicated relationship between them. And although de Gaulle in 1945 thought it was absolutely essential that Pétain be put on trial, uh, because there had to be a kind of settling of accounts of what had happened between 40 and 44, he retained a certain admiration, respect for the Pétain of the First World War. And so it was, there was an anecdote in my book on de Gaulle, which a lot of people uh, were very struck by, which is that when Pétain finally died in 1951, one of de Gaulle's aides said to him, Pétain is dead. And de Gaulle corrected him and said, no, the marshal is dead. In other words, not Pétain, the marshal, he is still a great man. And I was fascinated by that. And so I decided that I would try and explore all those things through this book in the trial. Is there anything happening in today's world which perhaps motivated you to write this book? I was certainly influenced by the fact that the 
the memory of the Vichy regime and the memory of what people call collaboration remains a very hot issue in France. And indeed, there's a French translation of the book that's coming out early next year, where I've already changed some of the end because the story is continuously changing because they're still debating PETA. If I can, if I can give you an example of that, which wasn't in my book because it hadn't happened yet, and it happened over the last summer when the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, reprimanded his own prime minister, a woman called Elisabeth Bourne. And it's interesting to know that Elisabeth Bourne's father was a Holocaust victim. He was deported to, I think, Auschwitz and returned, but later committed suicide when she was about 15 because of those memories. So she had made a a speech comparing the ideas and philosophy of the Rassemblement National, which is the extreme right party in France, used to be called the, the National Front, the Front National. And she said that the leader of that party, Marine Le Pen, was a pétanist, right? So she made the link to the war. And Macron reprimanded her and said, the way to fight the Front National, the Rassemblement National, is not through historical and moral arguments. It's, it's, it's fighting them on what they believe today. We don't want to bring in these arguments. Uh, whether he was right to do that or not, I don't know. And that's a matter for discussion. But it shows that the issue is terribly present in French politics. One other example, which is very current, the extreme, right, even more extreme than Marine Le Pen, right-wing politician, a man called Eric Zemmour, who got about 7% in the last presidential election. Uh, Zemmour recently resuscitated the idea that Pétain and his regime, the Vichy regime, had been responsible for saving the lives of French Jews, which is absolutely counter to what most people believe. So, yes, it's absolutely present in France today. And although I ended my book with a phrase that a lot of reviewers said, oh, he shouldn't have ended like that. The reviews have been good, but they've a lot of people, reviewers always like to pick on something. Uh, it's nice for them to pick on something. And the last line of the book I say the words, the the PETA case is closed. And a lot of people who are reviewing it said this was a wonderful book, but is the PETA case really closed? And so in the French translation, I changed that end. And I said, the last line of the book is now something like, the PETA case is now is closed, but PETANism lives on. In other words, I, the point I want to make is no one really has got any mileage in invoking the name of PETA, but the ideas of PETA or the ideas of the extreme right, rather, are still very present in France. Could you give us a brief overview of his life and career prior to 1940? Peter was a First World War hero. Um, he was the First World War hero of France. I mean, there had been other, um, obviously, military leaders. There was there was General Joffre and there was General Foch. But Peter was, by the end of the war, in another league. In fact, curiously, his career just before the First World War, he was heading for retirement. He wasn't even a general. He was a colonel. His career had stalled, you might say. And had there not been the First World War, none of us would have ever heard of the name of Petta. And the reason it had stalled was that he was he was very much counter as an officer before the First World War. He very much opposed the prevailing military doctrines of the French high command, which was all about offensive, you know, that they, you've got to attack. And even it's almost like with a kind of, you know, a kind of élan, you will prevail. And Petta was taking a much more sceptical view, and here's one of his, about this idea of the offensive at all costs. Anyway, so in the First World War, he is put in charge, he does very well in the first two years, and he's put in charge of the defence of the city of Verdun. And Verdun is the battle of the First World War for the French. And whereas for we remember the Somme, I think 
totally negatively. I don't think there's any positive memory of the Somme. It's simply a waste of life, a massacre. Whereas the French, although the casualties at Verdun were on an unbelievable scale, actually on the German and the French side, the French actually remember Verdun as horrible, but also as glorious, because they succeeded in protecting the fort of Verdun, which became a sort of symbolic of the whole French attempt. So he ended the war not only as the victor of Verdun, but he's a bit like all the First World War generals of all countries put together <laughs> as a hero. So there's a bit, you know, Haig or Ludendorff or Hindenburg or the other French generals. He is the one. And the other thing about him is uh, that he looks the part. He's a very, um, uh, he was an ex- extraordinary uh, good-looking young man from the north of France, very tall, blonde, blue-eyed. And although in the interwar years he's an old man, he's still, everybody comments on the extraordinary sort of nobility of his bearing, of this these, these eyes, this, he was an inveterate womanizer till the end of his life, and women adored him. And so you can't exaggerate the extent of the Pétain myth by 1940. He's retired by 1940. He took retirement in 1930 from the army, but he becomes bigger than anything he'd been before. And he starts to develop ideas about education reform, about political reform. He becomes a kind of sort of sage. And a lot of people on the right wing of French politics start to see Pétain as a potential uh, savior from what are seen as the failures of democracy. What were some of the key events leading to the fall of France in the summer of 1940? For me, the key is that there are lots of books about, you know, how France was weakened by pacifism and divisions. But in my opinion, the key thing is a terrible strategic error from which the French never recovered. Putting it very simply, uh, the French thought that the Germans would do more or less what they did in 1914, which is to come through Belgium, which was called the Schlieffen Plan in 1914. And indeed, until for some months, that's exactly what the Germans were going to do. But then they changed the plan. So the French are ready for the attack, but they're ready for an attack in the wrong place. They think the attack's going to take place in Belgium, so they have all their best troops ready to move into Belgium the moment German offensive begins, which they do, and those troops perform extremely well uh, against the Germans in Belgium. But what they don't realise is that the brunt of the German attacks coming further south through the forests of the Ardennes, which was thought by the French to be impenetrable, basically, uh, because it's very hilly, wooded, um, and also crossed by very deep rivers, the River Meuse in particular, with steep river banks. So the thought that the Germans could push tanks through that area seemed inconceivable. And the Germans do it. The French are taken by surprise. You could say that on the 15th of May, the Battle of France is lost. There's no chance for recovering from that initial breakthrough by the Germans on the River Meuse. And over the next few weeks, the French government has to decide what consequences to draw from that defeat. The Prime Minister, Paul Reynaud, makes the terrible mistake of taking Pétain into his government. He's there to symbolise the desire for victory, he's a great hero and so on. What Reynaud doesn't realise is that Pétain is convinced that France has lost and he doesn't think the war is winnable for the Allies. And over the next six weeks, although the French armies recover to some extent, it is clear that in France, on the soil of France, the battle is lost. And I should say it's not just a French defeat, it's an Allied defeat. The British are there as well. It's a Franco-British defeat. The government then has to decide what to do next. And there are two factions, basically one faction, which says, well, we'll take the government abroad. What's abroad? 
North Africa, which is part of France, which is part of the French Empire, but very much seen as part of France, particularly Algeria, we can go abroad and we'll continue from abroad and we'll take as many soldiers and ammunition as we can to North Africa and we'll go on fighting from there. The armistice faction led by Pétain says, no, it's all finished. There's no point. We should just sign an armistice with Germany. The British will soon be defeated. It's all over. And that became a very intensive battle in the last days of the middle of June. And in the end, the Pétain faction, if you want, the armistice faction, win. And so Paul Reynaud, the prime minister, resigns. He said, OK, if the government wants to do this, I don't want to sign an armistice with Germany. I want the government to go abroad. I want us to go on fighting, even if it's from abroad. So he resigned and Pétain became the new prime minister, président de conseil, they call it in France. And the first speech he makes on the 17th of June, 17th of June, is to say, I am now going to seek the conditions of an armistice. And on the next day from London, the young general de Gaulle calls for resistance. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. What was collaboration and what forms did it take? The leaders of the Vichy regime took the view, and they were basically, most of them took the view, that Germany was going to win the war. And whatever you thought about Germany, uh, they weren't Nazis, the Vichy leaders, um, but they nonetheless shared some affinity with the values of the Nazis. Some, they were probably closer to a more conservative authoritarian regime like the ones in Portugal and Spain. But their view was that if Germany is going to win the war, we need to develop some kind of arrangement with Germany that's pragmatic, um, prepare for the future. Also, what nobody had predicted was that the war would go on when Pétain signed the armistice. It, the belief was that the British would be defeated in a few weeks. The war would be over, a peace treaty would be signed, and then whatever, France might lose some territory, but we get an end to the occupation that Sort of something normal would resume and that the French prisoners of war, there were a million French prisoners of war in German prisoner war camps, they'd come back. That didn't happen because British didn't give in. And so the French began to find the 
just the day-to-day obligations imposed on them by the armistice very, very burdensome. So another reason for collaboration, as it came to be called, was the idea not just about preparing for the future, but just trying to sort of talk to the Germans and negotiate with the Germans to see if some of the more arduous aspects of the armistice could be ameliorated. For example, could French prisoners of war be released even if the war wasn't technically over? So collaboration which isn't in itself a negative word. To collaborate with somebody is a good thing, usually, you know, it's a cooperating. But it comes later to be very loaded because cooperation with the Germans, which Petain and others explicitly called a collaboration, uh, was later seen as a betrayal of national interest. It's, 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 it's basically Germany is the enemy. And I, I couldn't repeat too often, France is... The war is not over. A peace treaty hasn't been signed. France and Germany are not allies. They've simply suspended hostilities. And so when, in really the most, one of the most notorious moments of the occupation in France was when Pétain met Hitler at a small town on the Loire, just by the, near the Loire River, a town called Montoir. They met at the railway station there because Hitler was on his way by train to see Franco in Spain. And they met, probably for a, they spoke for about an hour or so. They shook hands, and the handshake between Petain and Hitler was then uh, sort of, it became, to use a term we'd say now, went viral. It was in all newspapers all over the world and was used shamelessly by the Germans as propaganda. The old French war hero shakes hands with Adolf Hitler. And at the trial, that moment, the Montois meeting between Hitler and Pétain was one of the controversial moments. The significance of Montois itself was probably more symbolic than it was real, but nonetheless it was a symbol of what later became seen as a betrayal of France, as as the opposite of patriotism, collaboration, working in some kind of way with the Germans. What were the main charges brought against Pétain at his trial? Well, the one problem when it came to trying Pétain was exactly what are you trying him for? De Gaulle returns as the head of um, the liberated France and the French haven't yet settled what kind of permanent regime they're going to have. So de Gaulle is the head of the provisional government and they don't want to do, they don't want to seem like Vichy, because what Vichy had done was basically tried to, on trumped up charges for crimes that didn't previously exist, retrospective justice, if you want. So they wanted to try and go by the book more. They didn't want to be seen like Vichy, just retribution. They wanted it to seem like a, a fair, honest legal process. But of course, this is an unprecedented situation. So they have to scour the French penal code to see what they can find without inventing new crimes that didn't exist before, avoiding retroactive justice. And what they find is, most importantly, is an article in the French penal code, it's Article 75, which is essentially about treason, which says that um, it's what in French it's called um, intelligence avec l'ennemi, and working with the enemy, sort of betraying the interests of France to the enemy. And so that's the clause they use. The problem with that then is to really show that Peter had worked with the enemy. And it's more difficult, you might say, you know, Montoir, what we talked about a moment, meeting Hitler, shaking Hitler's hand. But in the end, shaking Hitler's hand is shaking Hitler's hand. It can't be seen as a crime. So a lot of the problem is sort of proving treason 
And what is treason? And a lot of the trial is trying to find just the smoking gun, a little bit of evidence that will link the actions of Petain to being willing to actually fight with the Germans. Because that, if you're saying I'm going to fight with the Germans against the British or Soviet Russia, that is clearly treason. It's all very obscure and it's difficult to find that smoking gun. But an enormous amount of effort is spent on that issue. Whereas something will obviously mention a little bit later, uh, a crime like what happened to the Jews under Vichy. At Nuremberg, a new category was invented, crimes against humanity. That wasn't available to the Petain court. And so the trial sometimes seems to get rather mired in rather obscure issues because they're desperate to prove treason. And so what he is being tried for, in, in one word, is treason. And what the in intelligence avec l'ennemi, complicity, cooperation with the enemy. For example, there's a, an attempt at various times to prove that Pet actually plotted uh, in the 1930s against the Republic and plotted, wanted the defeat in order to impose his new regime. That led nowhere. And then for, a, for about a week, the trial was sort of spent time trying to prove a plot that even the prosecution came to realise didn't exist. But essentially, the bottom line is treason. And the defenders of, of Pétain are going to say, well, show us that it was treason. Show us that the Vichy regime didn't actually protect the French people. So, But that is what he is technically tried for. Who were the key figures involved in prosecuting and defending Pétain during his trial? Well, one of the things about the trial was, of course, all the people involved have their own histories. And there are a lot of hypocrisies there, because after all, all the French have lived through the Vichy period, and many people have supported Vichy. And now, some of the people are effectively repudiating their own past. And this is particularly clear of the prosecutor, the government prosecutor in the high court. He was a man called André Mornay. And the government, it was very difficult in 1945 to find magistrates, judges, lawyers who had not been in some way tarred by the Vichy regime because every single judge under Vichy had to take, and most Vichy inherited most of the judges of the police regime. It couldn't just suddenly spirit out new judges, but every judge had to take an oath of personal loyalty to Petain in August 1941. 1945 comes, it's again, you can't sack every judge, otherwise, you just you know, there. Uh, how can you carry out any kind of legal process? So, necessarily, all the three judges, there were three magistrate they, the the way the court functioned was there was a, a head judge and two assistants all three had sworn the oath of loyalty to Petain, but that was inevitable i suppose but the view of the liberation authorities was in itself swearing an oath of Petain was unavoidable in a way and the judges who had used the cover of continuing to be a judge to some way mitigate the worst effects of the Vichy regime, who not, as it were, being very repressive, uh, could be allowed to continue. Others were purged. So the three judges who presided the trial were not, not particularly prominent people, and they had sworn the oath to Petta, but their copybook hadn't been blemished particularly. The public prosecutor had not sworn the oath of loyalty to Petta, but only because he had taken his retirement in July 1940, just before the oath was imposed. So therefore, he was always boasting, I didn't take the oath of loyalty to Petain, so I'm unblemished. I'm not in any way tarred by the Vichy regime. But in fact, lots of people knew that that same man, although he'd retired from the judiciary, 
had sat on a commission set up by Vichy, committee, commission set up by Vichy uh, in 1940, July 1940, to advise on the denaturalization of French citizens who had been naturalized French in the 1930s. What does that mean? It means Jewish refugees who'd arrived in France and got citizenship. So the man who is prosecuting Pétain has been involved in a key organization of the Vichy regime. So that's a sign, as it were, and everybody knew that. So there are all these layers and layers. If we look at the defense councils, there were three lawyers. And what's interesting about the the three defense lawyers is they each had a different strategy for the defense. And the head man, the oldest of the three lawyers, basically what he wants is to kind of excuse Petain in two ways. He's an old man. He didn't use the word senile, but he can't be blamed for all his actions. And secondly, the real villains are Petain, but his advisors around him who manipulated him, who took advantage of his advanced age, his political inexperience, and so on. So basically, that's the man who's called Fernand Payon. That's his strategy. Another lawyer called Le Maire, um, whose strategy wasn't very clear, was just to sort of wave his arms around and shout at everybody. And then there was a third very brilliant young man who in some ways is seen by many as kind of the star of the trial, a, a young lawyer called Jacques Isorny, who's in his 30s. Most of the people involved are in their 60s, early 70s. And Isorny, he was quite right-wing, but he was a very distinguished young up-and-coming lawyer who clearly wanted to make his reputation, but was a man who had certain sympathy with the values of the Vichy regime, one can assume. And he had been the defender of a collaborator who was sentenced to death, a writer called Robert Bresiak, who was a fascist, was sentenced to death. And Isorny really started to identify. He, he, he was deeply moved by his own defense of Bresiak. And so when it came to defending Petain, he really invested heart and soul and belief in the man he was defending. He decided to say this trial is going to be not just the defense of Petain, but the defense of a regime. It's going to be the defense of everything that happened in France between 1940 and 1945. And his defense is that Petain was a martyr and a hero. He goes whole hog on this. And he says Petain was a martyr because he sacrificed in the eyes of the world, his honour, by, as it were, sort of signing an armistice, in order to protect the French people from the worst effects of the occupation. And that's the Isorny defence. So we've got three defence lawyers who each hate each other, who are very ambitious. Payot is really defending Pétain because he wants to become a member of the Académie Française, which is the most elite institution in France. He's only sees the chance to uh, make his career. And on the other side, we have people like the prosecutor who are deeply tarnished by their association with the Vichy regime. Were there any notable witnesses or testimonies that played a significant role during the trial? Some people say it was a show trial. I don't think that word's helpful because it was a trial in the sense that there were 65, 70, roughly speaking, it depends how you count them, people were called to testify. And most in the defence, most of the witnesses were defence witnesses who'd been involved with Vichy or had known Petain in various ways. So there, there was a debate, right? Even if the outcome is more or less certain, there is a real debate about 
Vichy and about Pétain. And in the trial, uh, several former prime ministers of France, the former president of France, the former head of the French Parliament, the former head of the French Senate, generals, diplomats, and lots of really very distinguished people parade through the court to give their testimony. I suppose the standout moments are three people, really. The first is the first witness to appear, prosecution witness, uh, the man I've mentioned already, Paul Reynaud, who had been prime minister in 1940, the man who'd brought Pétain into his government, who had hoped that Pétain would bolster morale and who had wanted to avoid an armistice. So everybody's waiting to see what Renault will say. Renault had been imprisoned by the Vichy regime and then deported by the Germans to Germany. He speaks for two days, he's in court for two days, and Renault is saying he, he knows that he's in some kind of way also tarnished. The problem is almost everybody there knows they're tarnished in some way. He regrets having brought Pétain into his government. He regrets that he didn't have the sort of moral courage to take the government to North Africa and so on. So he's there basically to defend himself as well as attack Peta. And think of the extraordinary drama of this moment. The courtroom's tiny, and here is Renault giving his evidence a few feet in front of Peta, accusing Peta of being a traitor. But it's partly so that he... Renault can rehabilitate himself. And it made a very bad impression, because if there was no love in 1945 for the Vichy regime, there wasn't much love either for the politicians of the 1930s, who were seen as responsible for the defeat. But certainly his testimony was a, was a big event. I think the testimony that most moved the court was the former French socialist leader, a man called Léon Blum. And he, he was Jewish, socialist, head of a left-wing government in the 1930s. He was deported to an internment house near Buchenwald by the Germans during the war. He comes back. It's amazing he survived, but I think he survived because the Germans thought he might be a kind of useful negotiating tool and so on. So he survived the war. And for most people, Bloom, who was a very controversial figure because the extreme right had hated him. He was a socialist. He was a Jew. He was almost everything they didn't like. What was different about his testimony was that it wasn't recriminations. It wasn't, I, I'm perfect, I got it all right, which was very much the Renault line. It was a very deeply thoughtful, but also deeply emotional testimony of living through those last days of the Third Republic. And he was almost in tears at various moments as he was talking. And then there's a very dramatic moment because most of these people beforehand, Daladier and Renault, when it came to, do you believe the armistice was treason? Do you believe Peta was a traitor? They can't quite bring themselves to say the words that he was a traitor. They say the armistice was wrong. We were against Peta. We don't believe it was with the interests of France. But Peta, traitor, they find it hard to say those words. Bloom is without any rancor, without any sense of taking revenge, he's much more clinical at the same time as being very emotional. And there's a question he's asked, do you think that Marshal Petter was a traitor? They're all asked that. And he says, I can't really say. And then he turns around and he walks up to Petter and he says, there is a Petter mystery. We don't really know what was going on in the head of Petter. And he's literally, the two men almost sort of lock eyes. And Petter, who had 
announced at the beginning of the trial that he would not speak after making an initial declaration. He would not recognize the authority of the court. That he, you almost see him desperate to want to say no or to say something. And then Bloom goes through all the reasons why, in his view, you can't let Petter off the hook. And it's an electric moment in the trial. And then I think the third moment of high drama is the totally unexpected, unpredicted, and unwanted by everybody arrival of the man who was seen as the evil genius of the Vichy regime, the number two, if you want, but the man who was really pulling the strings, a politician called Pierre Laval. And Laval was very instrumental in the setting up of the Vichy regime. He had been Pétain's prime minister for most of it, the period when he was out of power. And when the liberation came, um, Laval took refuge in Franco's Spain. And the Spanish were embarrassed to have him there because Franco was keen to rebuild good relations with the Allies, if possible, and so on. And so they wanted to get rid of Laval. During the first week of the trial, it was very useful, particularly for the defence, to say, well, it wasn't Petain, it was Laval. And people would say, uh, Laval is a dung heap. Laval, that was said by somebody at some point. So Laval was the perfect scapegoat for everything that went on. Nobody expected him to be there. He'd been the kind of absent presence throughout the first week of the trial. His name was always there, but he wasn't there. And so you could say about him what you wanted. And suddenly he arrives back. He's in court for two days and nobody quite knows how he's going to play his testimony. Is he going to try and blame everything on Petter? Is he going to try and hide behind Petter? What lines are you going to take? Is Petter himself we know from the man who was sort of looking after him in his in his cell each evening, said Petain was in a state of total agitation, knowing that Laval was going to be in court the next day. So it's a moment of extraordinarily high drama, and Laval doesn't let Petain off the hook. And when he's asked the what you might call the one of the million dollar questions is the meeting with Hitler, Montois, October nineteen forty. And what the defence wants is to show that Pétain only went there because he was pushed by Laval. Laval says exactly the opposite. Pétain was fully behind the visit. Pétain was not senile. Pétain backed everything I did. So those, I think that moment is really one of the most dramatic moments of the trial. And the, the famous writer Albert Camus, who was one of the rising stars of French literary life in 1945, who wrote a number of articles on the trial for one of the resistance newspapers. The trial had one of the things, wonderful things about writing it is all kind of very distinguished journalists and writers are writing columns about it. And Camus wrote quite often, but he was never present in court except once he appeared to see the famous Laval. So that was a really a key moment. And whereas Pétain is noble and handsome, even as an old man, aged 90, Laval is, he looks the pantomime villain. You know, he, that, he looks exactly the part. How did the trial address the Vichy government's anti-Semitic measures? Well, I think for anybody looking at the trial today, the thing that most surprises people is how little the question of anti-Semitism was discussed. If we were running the Pétain trial today, and indeed some trials of former Vichy officials have taken place in the 1990s and 2000s, there's no question that the trial would be primarily about the fact that 75,000 Jews from France, some of them French citizens, some of them foreign Jews, were deported and never came back, were deported to Auschwitz and never came back. That's undeniably, incontrovertibly, that is the central question. It was hardly addressed in the trial, and that seems very peculiar to us today. But I think there 
a number of reasons, and it's not as surprising as it should seem. The first is that actually, if you look at the Nuremberg trials, it's not true that anti-Semitism wasn't mentioned. It wasn't the central issue at Nuremberg either. The central issue at Nuremberg was to try and show that Hitler et al. had been responsible for the outbreak of the war. That that's They're war criminals because they caused a war. And the truth is that in 1945, the specificity of the Holocaust wasn't something people knew about. It wasn't the central issue. And yes, things were committed against the Jews, but so many other people suffered in the war. So there's not this sense that there's something different, specific about the fate of the Jews. And the perfect example for France would be that one of the backdrops to the preparation of the trial was that during the preparations, the weeks before the trial, the camps in Germany were opening and French deportees were coming back. Some of them were Jews most of them were not Jews because most Jews never came back. But a lot of French resistors who had been deported to German concentration camps, who had been tortured and beaten and suffered atrociously coming back. And there was enormous wave of sympathy for the returning deportees in the spring of 1945. But people didn't make a distinction between Jewish deportees and the resistance deportees. Now, there's no doubt the resistance deportees suffered many of them terribly. But there is something we now, I think, all accept or totally specific about the Jewish experience, which was that most of them were there just to be killed. But it's only really from the Eichmann trial in Jerusalem in 1961 that the Jewish issue becomes more and more and more and more central. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is people, remember, Petah was being tried for treason, not crimes against humanity, because the concept of crimes against humanity didn't exist. So there wasn't actually anything he could be technically tried for in relation to Vichy's policies towards the Jews. And then the third thing is that people didn't actually know. Remember, they're trying to gather evidence. They're trying to build a case in, in, in a matter of weeks. And there are hundreds of thousands of documents, some of which aren't yet back in France, some of which are in France, which have to be analysed to try and make the case and it's really only in later years that it's become clear, thanks to the work of historians, that Vichy played a, a very important role in helping the Germans in their policy of deportation in 1942. And that not only did Vichy police arrest Jews, but Vichy police arrested Jews because the Vichy authorities had ordered this to happen. The details of this are very complicated when the line of the defence, actually, at, at the trial was that the Germans were the criminals when it came to the Jews, and Vichy had done his best even to protect the Jews. So for all kinds of reasons, the Jewish issue, which would seem central to us today, was really subsidiary. And you could make the point that among the 60 to 70 witnesses who are called not one of them was Jewish, with the exception of Leon Blum, who I mentioned earlier. But Leon Blum wasn't there as a Jew. He was there as a politician, a socialist, a leading figure who had been a victim of the Vichy regime, but not as a Jew. So that in itself would seem to us extraordinary today, that no uh, two resistors were called upon to talk about the, what their particular suffering, no Jews. What sentence did Peytan receive and how did his punishment compare to other collaborators and wartime leaders from other nations? Well, Peytan was sentenced to death. The jury spent six or seven hours uh, deliberating and there was a, we know a bit about the deliberations 
which were obviously secret from jurors who published accounts of their discussions later on. And I found a source which no one's used before, the diary of one of the jurors. So I was able to reconstitute a bit of the debates among the jurors. And actually, the vote for the death penalty, the vote for the explicit decision verdict that Petain was a traitor, Article 75, was actually only passed by by one vote, amazingly enough. So in the end, everybody believed Petain was guilty of something. So it was very slim. And then they recommended by majority that the death penalty not be carried out. But they wanted symbolically to be... It, it needed to be said, as it were. They, the, a majority felt by, by one. So the verdict was death. It was commuted as everybody knew and really hoped it would be. I mean, imagine shooting a man of 90 who had been your greatest First World War hero. It would have created, I mean, it would have been counterproductive in a sense. He would have really turned him, he is turned into a martyr actually in other ways. But if ever there's a way of turning someone into a martyr, it's shooting them and literally turning them into a martyr. So how did his sentence compare? Let's look at the cases actually judged by the the high courts, the, the French high court, that's to say the top Vichy officials of the about 100 cases that the High Court judged, Petain was the fourth one. Quite a few death sentences, many in absentia, were meted out. The first was Laval. Uh, Laval's trial came after Petain's trial, and it was a grotesque occasion. With no, It was not a proper trial. It was like a, almost like a public lynching. It created such a bad impression that they changed the composition of the High Court afterwards. Laval refused to attend after three days because it was it was quite clear. Jurors were shouting insults and so on. He took cyanide in his prison cell and his body was pumped and then he was sort of taken more half dead than alive to be shot. And this created a very bad impression. Laval was hated, but this wasn't creditable, as it were, to his opponents. And two others, a notorious figure who was head of the kind of French Gestapo, the, the milice, it was called, the kind of secret police of Vichy. He was executed, and a, a third a third man, Fernand de Brinon, an advocate of collaboration, was executed. So there the are two ways of reading the, the so-called purges in France. One is to say that it was a bloodbath. That's what the right wing say. But in another way, you could say, actually, there were about, about 10,000 people were killed during the fighting at the end. So there were kind of, you know, reprisals were taking place. But once the courts moved into action, I think it was a process. These processes are never simple. Think of the end of any regime, you know, think of the end of the apartheid regime or the end of the Argentinian dictatorship. How do you do these things, as it were? And how do you combine justice with reconciliation? And it's an impossible task. And I think that the French handled it probably as well as it can ever be handled if you're going to have some kind of settling of accounts while not plunging into a kind of permanent civil war. How has Peyton's legacy influenced French politics and national unity in the decades since? And has there been any official reconciliation or apology regarding the actions of the Vichy government? That story is a very a very complicated one because the French have, have never stopped talking and thinking about the Vichy regime. And a whole wave of historiography in the 1970s told the French a lot of things that they didn't want to hear about the fact that a lot of the things that people wanted to blame on the Germans couldn't just be blamed on the Germans. They had to be blamed on the Vichy regime. It wasn't a puppet. But the question of the extent to which the French state or the French people, whatever, French politicians have accepted responsibility for what happened then is very complicated. And it's for this reason, because de Gaulle's line and the official line of the French government 
since 1945, 44-45, has been that Vichy, in some sense, didn't exist. What do I mean by that? That the real France, the real patriotic France, the real France, the eternal France, whatever you want to call it, was in London with the goal. That there's a continuity that runs from the Democratic Republic in 1940 through the goal in London to the new democratic republic after 1945. So in some kind of way, France is not guilty. In some way, Pétain doesn't represent France. Pétain has to be punished, but he is not France. He's a traitor to France. So if you say that there was an unbroken line of France, the, the legal, legitimate France, through de Gaulle, and that Vichy is a kind of German parenthesis, then... In a sense, you don't have to apologise for what Vichy did because Vichy didn't exist, or Vichy isn't France, rather. So you don't have to apologise for France because Vichy isn't France. And that is the position of all French governments right up till 1995. So when the Jewish question, as we said, the fate of the Jews becomes more and more present in public memory from the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, when François Mitterrand is president in the 19, from 1981 onwards, increasingly, he starts to come under pressure to make some kind of statement of atonement, of apology or whatever, recognition of the crimes that be committed. And he would always refuse. He, obviously, he, he says Mitra wasn't uh, justifying what happened, but he said, it's not for me, as president of the French Republic, to apologise for crimes that maybe some French policemen were involved, but this was not France. And some people say, oh, well, that's typical of Mitterrand's rather dodgy, hypocritical politics. And he had himself been involved first as a young man with Vichy before he became a resistor. But actually, the Mitterrand line was also the de Gaulle line. He was being quite faithful to the official line. We can't apologise for what is not France. So the question is, where is France? The man who breaks that silence, if you want, is Jacques Chirac, who, interestingly enough, was the first French president since the Second World War, too young, no way involved. All the others had pasts, good or well, there weren't had been many presidents, but they, whether it be de Gaulle or Pompidou or Giscard d'Estaing, they'd all remembered the war as adults. They'd all been adults. Chirac doesn't have any of that baggage, so he becomes president in 1995, and he makes a very famous speech on the 16th of July. 1995, which is the anniversary of the most notorious roundup of Jews that had taken place in the whole of the occupation, the so-called Raf de Veldiver, where 20,000, roughly speaking, Jews were rounded up in Paris, were parked in a atrocious conditions in the sports stadium, the Vélodrome d'Hiver, why it's called the Veldiver roundup, and then they're deported to eventually, almost all of them, men, women, children, deported to, to Auschwitz. And Chirac, the first French president to, on the anniversary, 16th of July, of that event, he says, his words are, on that day, France committed the irreparable. But the key word there is France. Others that that knew and deplored that moment, but to say France was a real break with a whole tradition which doesn't want to see Vichy as France. And then since 1995, that is now every president who now becomes right up to Macron, um, and nobody has been uh, stronger than Macron. And each year now 
on the 16th of July, there is a speech by the President of the Republic reiterating, but almost going further, if anything, than Chirac, almost as if the Germans weren't there. The French are so beating themselves on the breast by this, this one. So there's a danger that we're actually going a bit too far in that direction. But nonetheless, the big question still remains, how do you reconcile the fact, were there just two Frances? Was there a France in Vichy and a France in London? So the question of accepting responsibility is very complicated because it calls into question much deeper questions about what, what is France? What are the values of France? That was Julian Jackson, Emeritus Professor of Modern French History at Queen Mary, University of London. Julian's book, France on Trial, The Case of Marshal Patton, is out now, published by Alan Lane. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.